Hello and welcome to Everyday Sublime. This is the podcast that explores a full-spectrum spirituality. I'm your host, Josh Summers, and I'm really glad you're here today. In this episode, I continue on with a Dharma talk that reflects on some of the difficult energies that emerge when we endeavor to get still and see things clearly. Uh, this list of difficulties is in Buddhism is referred to as the hindrances, and over the last several weeks, if not months, I've been looking at the energy of desire, how that manifests in practice, and how we can work with that. And in this talk, I introduce the theme of beginning to work with the, the flip side of desire, the, 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 dis, the mind of disliking, the mind of aversion, and the mind of ill will. And this is, for many, a, a, one of the more troubling and challenging energies that come up, uh, particularly when it, when it manifests as kind of a righteous rage or hatred of other or of self. So I don't fully address all of the facets of this theme in this one talk, but I do open the door to it and, and begin to explore it um, in a way that I hope is helpful. Uh, before I give the talk, though, if you um, are interested at all in yin yoga, I just want to mention that um, this coming Saturday, March 6th, from 10 to 12 Eastern Standard Time, I'll be giving an online workshop on the fundamental core essentials of yin yoga. This is open to anybody. Um, registration's open now, and I know there are many people that have trained with me that are coming back from for a a time to re refresh the basics, but this is particularly geared for anyone that's new to the practice. And what I'll be doing is I'll cover the core principles of the practice, the core features that are, make it a, a distinct practice from other forms of asana. Um, I'll notify you about what's normal, what's to be expected, what should be tolerated, and what shouldn't be allowed. Um, this is all designed so that you can practice safely and effectively on your own. Um, so there's a link for you in the show notes on that workshop coming up on March 6th, which is the heart of yin yoga. And other than that, I'll just say that I hope you're doing well. Um, this weekend, this is a Thursday that I'm recording. This weekend, I'm going to be attending a, I'm really excited to be attending a, an online four-day silent retreat with two teachers that I've worked with in the past from Hawaii, uh, Steve Armstrong and Kamala Masters. Both these teachers worked for many years with the late Burmese master that I spent a few months with um, back in 2004, named Saida Upandita. So in a way, this is working with them again, reconnecting with them, is a, feels like I'm returning to the, the taproot of my own lineage in a way, and I'm looking forward to that reconnection. So I wish you, for now, I wish you all the best in your practice, and without further ado, I give you today's Dharma talk, V for Vendetta. And I changed the title just so it didn't conflict with the old movie V is for Vendetta. Didn't want any copyright infringement there. V for Vendetta. For this evening's talk, I'm continuing on with a series of reflections about the challenges in practice, the challenging energies that arise at various points in our path. And um, 
And this, we, I've been talking about desire, the, the, the craving, wanting, grasping mind for, for a bit. And tonight I'm going to shift gears and start to introduce and explore the, the second this, uh, disagreeable energy of mind, <laughs> she said. And that is the, um, the energy of ill will or, or hatred or animosity or contention. Um, and I've been referring to these, these mind states as, 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 as um, the hindrances, like the, ob the obstacles of practice. But in many times in the, in the early Buddhist teaching, they, they are translated as in, into English for the word defilement. You know, these defilements, these, like, these, these, these unpleasant, unsavory things that, that, that tarnish and um, degrade the, the nature of the mind when they're present or when they're operative. And um, using that term, there's a very famous and, and often quoted passage of the Buddha that's attributed to the Buddha where he allegedly says, the mind's nature is radiant and luminous. It's, the mind's nature in itself is intrinsically radiant and luminous and the defilements are, are merely visitors. And I've always appreciated that line when I've been in kind of a, a dukkha patch or a, a hindrance attack myself, um, because it it, it it reminds me that these these things are just passing through. They're they're like weather patterns of our inner ecosystem, and they um, they may seem like they obstruct the, the the sun of our luminous attention or our luminous awareness, but but really, the, just like the sun can't be um, sort of d distorted or uh, or or degraded by the clouds passing before our vision so too you know our our, our awareness is not uh, uh, degraded or or made any less by the presence of these these visitors these challenging visitors but when when I when I first heard that phrase you know and particularly with this language of defilements when I heard the mind's nature is radiant and luminous and, the, and the, the, these defilements are just visitors in my early days of practice, I, if I, as I reviewed it, I, I, I saw that it really brought into my mind a subtle or not so subtle aversion to their presence. Like they were just um, unpleasant, um, malodorous mind states that were to be tolerated until they left. But there really wasn't much of value in them. And, um, and I kind of was always sweeping them away and doing sort of spiritual little tricks to get my mind to just rest into the luminous nature and, and forget about the defilements. And to a certain degree that works, but it, it doesn't really bring about a, a, a trans, transmutation or transformation of their energy that, you'll, that I saw uh, leading to kind of better outcomes in my actual life. Like in meditation, I could get spiritually uh, or, or meditatively accomplished enough with a technique in a way, just, just through dint of practice. And I could uh, pacify those defilements and when they were coming up in, in my meditation. But when I get off the meditation and, and go back in my life, then they, they kind of like swarm around like a cloud of locusts. Um, so it took me a, really, a long time to start to see that there was a, a subtle aversion in my mind, or as um, you might say like a, a subtle no that is, was trying to, didn't really trust my mind's ability to be with them as they are. I was kind of just patiently enduring them until they left. But over the years, um, as I've continued to work with these difficult, challenging energies, um, I've come to appreciate that 
um, a, a very light uh, attitude with them is, is all that's needed. Um, we, we, there, there tends to be the, the view that we need to do something specific to get them to, 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 to leave or to, to appease or to, to, to get uh, quiescent and, 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 and be still and not bother us so much. But really, the, as I keep trying to share in different ways, the, the fundamental movement in the meditation or the fundamental movement in the meditative path is not so much about changing the content of the conditions that we're experiencing. So we're not changing, you know, as I start to say, that we're not changing them or rearranging the furniture in our inner room of our mind. We don't have to change the content. What we do is we shift into a different level of our being that, that then holds the content from a different place in a different relationship. So this sometimes gets described as we move from having a problem that we identify with as me and my problem, we shift from that kind of that model or level of being me and my problem, that, that, that station, and we shift into a much more spacious level of our being that is analogous to the sky, a big sky mind that simply knows weather patterns moving through it as they are, but it, it, the sky mind itself is unfazed by whatever the weather happens to be. And this is um, beautifully summarized, I think, by the late Thai forest master, Ajahn Chah, who um, inspired many Western teachers and many of the teachers that I've had. I never met Ajahn Chah directly, but um, he, he had this to say at one point in his teaching. He said, about this mind, in truth, it isn't really anything. It's just a phenomenon. And within itself, it's already peaceful. The mind in itself is already peaceful. But then he continues and says that the mind is not peaceful these days, that we experience ourselves not at peace, that the mind is not peaceful these days is because it follows moods, sense impressions, and these things, these moods and sense impressions come and trick it into happiness. It tricks the mind into happiness, suffering, gladness, and sorrow. But the mind's true nature is none of those things. That gladness or sadness is not the mind, but only a mood coming to deceive us. The untrained mind gets lost and follows these things, forgetting itself. And then we think that it is we who are upset or at ease or whatever. But really, this mind of ours is already unmoving and peaceful. Our practice is simply to see the original mind. So you must train the mind to know those sense impressions and not get lost in them. Just this is the aim of all this difficult practice we put ourselves through. <clears throat> so as he says, as he indicates here, a large part of practice, usually in the early days, is getting familiar with and oriented to the various kinds of impressions that we experience as a, as a human. So the impressions of, of sensation in our body, impressions of thought in our mind, emotions and feelings, external sounds, sights, smells, tastes, all those things. We get familiar in our practice learning to see those impressions. And as we watch, as I try to say, as we watch the parade of those impressions come and go, come and go, without really doing anything other than intending to be receptive and observant of them, 
then we start to feel into the luminous quality of mind that's radiating upon those things, so allowing us to see them. And, and that, as he says, is just is, is the whole uh, path in a way, just to see the original mind shining brightly on all the various contents of our experience. <clears throat> but this is easier said than done. And um, one of the things that I, uh, I think it's, it's really uh, kind of exquisitely beautiful about the meditative process and then particularly on going on meditative retreats is that you just sort of steep yourself in this dynamic where you start to see over and over again the tapes, the stories, the broken records, the loops that, that spin around and agitate over and over again until it sort of starts to wear itself out and the mind no longer gets fooled by getting caught by those impressions. It's, it's not, it, 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 re, it releases itself from being fooled, not by stopping the sense impressions from occurring, but from really seeing them with greater precision and greater clarity. Um, and I have, I, I was trying to think of a good example of this in my own practice life, and I came up with a short list of two dozen stories that could illustrate this. But the one that I picked, I think, I hope um, will amuse you a little bit and, 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 and bring some lightness and levity to the serious work of working with anger and ill will. So this is in the late aughts um, at, when I was um, doing a lot of retreats at the Insight Meditation Society. And in the summers, I, I don't know if they still do it. I mean, obviously, retreats are being on, held online now, but in the summers, the Insight Meditation Society would have a monastic retreat where some of the monastics from the Thai forest tradition, um, which has outposts in England and Canada and now New England and California, uh, the mon monks and nuns from this, this Thai tradition would come and teach. And it was a special retreat at IMS because there was a little bit more formality with the monk monastics there, there was prayer and, and, and bowing and chanting and candles and incense, and it kind of had more of a, a yoga vibe to the, in comparison to the more austere, plain, um, plain living Buddhist vibe. Um, and so I was excited to be on this retreat, particularly because a teacher that I, I really uh, enjoyed through his online recordings, um, Ajahn Amaro, was leading this retreat. And Ajahn Amaro is now the the head abbot of, uh, of, the, of the monastery in England in this tradition. And the retreat started well, um, but I noticed, and, and, and when you get into these, these meditative circles, you start to see that some teachers seem to attract the same gathering of students over and over again. So I've done a few of these master retreats and, and noticed that there was like a, a coterie of, of people that just came to the monastic retreats that didn't do the retreats of any of the lay practitioners. So there, those, that, that group of People in the know about monasticism was there, if you know what I mean, that kind of, that kind of scene. And one of the guys in that in-the-know group, um, I don't know, I didn't know his name, but some sort of a middle-aged guy that I, I sort of spotted early on in the treat and recognized him. And I recognized him because he had this, um, this sartorial <laughs> clothing decision. He wore a polo shirt as part of his uniform. But the odd thing about the polo shirt is that the, the collar of this polo shirt was always pulled up vertical. <clears throat> Which, as you'll see in this as the story unfolds, was uh, deeply triggering to me. 
the vertical polo shirt. I mean, because, you know, if you think about it, when was the last time you saw somebody with the audacity to put a polo collar up vertically? Now, I haven't seen that since 1983. I mean, that was out, outdated in the early 80s. And, and anybody that would deign to do that now is just sort of broadcasting in, in bold terms their own pomposity and arrogance. And um, what annoyed me with, about this guy was that not only did his polo shirt get turned up all the time, but he had somehow wiggled his way into the inner circle with the monks. So the monks needed lay people to bring them tea and snacks periods of time as part of their um, their their the beverage routine. And um, this guy was, was, was brought into that little inner circle to, to be the special lay person to deliver tea and, and, and cookies and things. And I was, in the first few days, I was just boiling with jealousy. But how does this guy get to do that? Why didn't I get to know? Where did, how come we didn't see the sign-up sheet to be the monk tea bringer or whatever it was? <clears throat> But on the third day, things took a, a, a darker turn. Um, and I was just starting to find my stride with the retreat. Uh, and after breakfast, the breakfast ended around, I think, 8.30 or, or 9.30, one of those. It ended around half eight, half past eight. And I had wrapped up my breakfast around 8.20. I was gonna quickly dart into the bathroom because the bathrooms get cleaned at 8.30. And I knew I didn't wanna try to go into the bathroom when the, when the bathroom's getting clean. You're not supposed to do that. I knew the rules. So I went in a little bit early just to, it was not only a number one, so it's not nothing offensive or gross or anything like that, but just, you know, using the bathroom before, so I could go for a long walk out in the woods, which I enjoyed doing. So you went into the, the stall, did my business, and as I came out, there was this guy staring at me. He was just like, he'd like been waiting for me. And he had rubber kind of rubber gloves on that you would use to clean like dishes at a sink. And he had a, a big spray bottle that had some sort of cleaning agent in it. And he, he, he like took the spray bottle, shoved me in the chest with it silently because we were in silence and he couldn't speak, but he shoved me. And then he pointed the spray bottle at the count at the schedule of when the bathroom was getting cleaned saying, suggest trying to indicate, I think that it was past the time when the bathroom could be used. It was supposed to be in the cleaning hour. No one should be in the bathroom. So he pointed at that and pointed at his watch, and he was staring, like raging with like, these bloodshot eyes at me, or at least that's the way it felt. And I was totally, totally terrified. I was like, oh my goodness, I'm so sorry. I did the obligatory thing that you can only do when you're in silence, just, just put your palms to your chest and say, I'm so sorry. <laughs> just bow down and say, leave me, leave me, leave me in peace. <laughs> so I kind of scuttled out of the bathroom feeling very, um, or flummoxed and, 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 and confused and, and, and upset about the whole thing. I felt badly that I cut this guy's work period and, and maybe he had to sanitize the toilet one more time due, due to my negligence. <clears throat> but as I got some distance on the encounter and I would see him across the Dharma hall later on or see him in the, in the dining hall and I saw that vertical collar on his polo shirt and I realized he didn't need to be like that. That, uh, that. that whole situation in the bathroom didn't need to go down that road. It could have been handled in so many different ways. And why would he have handled it in such an aggressively hostile way on a spiritual meditation retreat? Who did this guy think he was? <clears throat> and now this is where it's, it's less flattering to me, I think, if it's not less flattering already. Um, 
I then proceed to go into a series of meditations unlike I've ever had where I would hatch different scenarios of plotting my revenge <laughs> against him. And you know, one scenario involved breaking into his room, stealing all his polo shirts and starching the collars down in the laundry room so they couldn't stick, stick the collars up. Or, um, you know, I, I, have a, I have a history, a long history way back in college of, of, of locking people in bathrooms. And I thought, well, that would be something I could do. Like when he goes to clean the toilet, I could, I could lock him in the stall and then he wouldn't be able to serve tea. And maybe I get to volunteer then to serve the monks tea. So I went around and around various of these ridiculous fantasies in the sitting and, and, and could see how ridiculous it was in that I was here I was in our retreat trying to attain some, some semblance of spiritual peace and, and contentment within. And all I was doing was raging against this utter stranger who happened to be annoyed that I was in the bathroom at the wrong time. <clears throat> now I knew better in a certain sense that I've been on enough retreats that I'd heard about this phenomenon known as a Vipassana Vendetta. And this phenomenon can cut both ways. Sometimes it takes the Vendetta form where there's somebody out there in the room that you just don't like the way they happen to dress. You don't like the, ha the way they happen to put their shoes on. You don't like the way they happen to sit down on their cushion. Something about them annoys you, the way they breathe, the way they clear their throat. And in the rarefied conditions of retreat, that annoyance can really fester into a boil of deep irritation. That's the Vipassana Vendetta. Can cut the other way, can be a total stranger out there, but you somehow just, you feel a certain affinity to them. It's not even so much a sexual attraction, it's a spiritual connection. And you like the way they sit, you like the way they pick up their fork, you like the way they bow before the, the statue. And you start to have a romantic, fantasy there, and that's called the Vipassana Romance. And, and both of those phenomena have been well-documented at retreat centers for, for many, many years. <clears throat> but as I was sitting there struggling with my, my vendetta against this, this uh, polo-colored yogi, um, I was reminded of a passage in the suttas from the, that the Buddha gave, a teaching of the Buddha gave, where a Brahmin, sort of a, a priestly person, a Brahmin came to the Buddha and asked him a question about, well, this is the question, I'll just read it here. It says, the question was, why is it that sometimes even, even those texts that have been recited over a long period of time, that they do not recur in the mind? He's basically, it's kind of a weird question that leads into this answer, but the question is, he's basically saying, you know, I've recited these, 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 these beautiful scriptures over and over again. And why is it that they don't recur in my mind when, they, when I need their support? You know, why, why do I forget their wise words, basically? And the Buddha's answer is this. And it's, it's referring to the hindrances here. He says, when one dwells with a mind obsessed by ill will, so this is like my mind in the retreat, obsessed with ill will, overwhelmed by ill will, and one does not understand, as it really is, the escape from a risen ill will. You don't understand how to escape from it. On that occasion, one neither knows nor sees as it really is. You, know, you don't see how it really is in terms of another's own good or in terms of your own good or the good of both. So, so just, just to paraphrase here, when, you, when you're consumed by ill will, we don't see 
it's a particularly ill will is towards ourselves. We don't see our own good in that state, and we can't perceive any good in the other. So then he says, then even those texts that have been recited over a long period of time, they don't recur to the mind because your, your perception is clouded by the ill will. And here's his metaphor for ill will. He says, suppose, Brahman, suppose there's a bowl of water being heated over a fire. A bowl of water heated, being heated by, over a fire, bubbling and boiling. If a man with good sight were to examine his own facial reflection in it, he would neither know nor see it as it really is. So too, Brahman, when one dwells with a mind obsessed by ill will, you will not see things as they are. Marvelous. <clears throat> so that was me. I was not seeing things clearly. I, I, you, and, and, and when I watched this, this, this man uh, sort of solemnly walk upstairs with his tray of tea to go visit Ajahn Amaro's private room and have some private time with Ajahn Amaro, I started to think to myself, Ajahn Amaro really might not be the best teacher. He can't see how selfish and hostile and angry and aggressive the student is. Like, what kind of teacher is he then? <laughs> so I started to doubt him. Anyway, I went around and around this whole thing for a few days. And about three days later, um, I had a little bit of a breakthrough. But the point I want to, before I go into my breakthrough moment, um, the two things I want, to, I want to tease out from the Buddhist simile here of, of ill will being like boiling water that doesn't allow us to see, to, to reflect, to see our own reflection in the water. So when water is boiling and really agitated, we can't, nothing, it doesn't function like a mirror. It won't reflect what it is before it. Um, and when that happens, our vision, as I try to say, skews our perception to only see what we don't like. We don't see anything likable, lovable, beneficial, or affable about the person. We just see the negative. And, and, the, and the inverse is true when our mind is consumed by desire. Um, when we really desire something particular in another person, at certain phases, we may only see positive, likable traits, and we don't see any of their shortcomings or uh, weaknesses. But I think, and this is what I'm, I'm going to plant a flag on this and come back to it next week, I think. But the second part of uh, having this distorted vision skewed by uh, desire or aversion or dislike is that we tend to impute essential nature on the person or the condition. So we, we, we attribute their behavior to some sort of essential character trait about them, something that's intrinsic to who they are. Like that person is just a, an aggressive, hostile jerk or that person is evil. And when we do that, when we, when, we, when we fall into the trap of essentializing the other and imputing intrinsic qualities that are fixed and static in them, that can lead us to a problem of attribution error. We start to attribute things to them that may not be uh, intrinsic to the way they see things or the way that they're um, intending to engage with things. So I'm going to speak, come back to that next week and, and look at some of the problems born out of attribution error from this distorted perception. <clears throat> but the coming back to the retreat, and this is our practice, the real value in sitting with these difficulties and letting them spool out and wind back up and spool out and wind back up and spool out and wind back up, the real value in letting that happen 
is that A, we start to become more familiar with the pattern over time. And the more we see it come and go, come and go, come and go, we start to identify more with the space that's knowing it coming and going. We start to identify more with the awareness that's, that's not really changing in, in, in relationship to it's coming to the conditions of the, of the mind state coming and going. And there I had been perseverating around this guy for a while until one day in a sitting, I heard a voice in my head, it didn't sound like my own, but the voice said something like, how long are you going to carry him? And, and, and I, at first I said, say that again, how long am I going, what? How long are we going to carry him? And then in the next moment, the answer sort of, uh, I got the download on the answer, which is that it was referring to a, a, a well-oiled Zen story about two monks who were coming back from a walk in the woods. And as they re, they're returning to their monastery, they, they're approaching a stream on one side of which, on their side of the stream, there was a woman trying to cross the stream. And as the monks approached, one of the monks says, ma'am, let me help you cross the stream. So he picked her up, carried her across the stream, placed her on the other side, and then rejoined his friend and they continued to walk back to the monastery. But in doing that, in touching the woman, he violated one of his monastic type of vows. And his friend knew it. His friend, his fellow monk knew it. this guy has broken a vow and he, he needs to repent. So before they entered the monastery, the friend said, hey, um, you know, just between you and me, I saw what happened back at the stream there, that, 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 that dalliance you just had. Um, do, you want to, do you want to repent for that before we enter the monastery? And, and, and the, monk, the, the monk that did pick up the woman and carried her across the stream helped her just simply said, I carried her across the stream. How long have you been carrying And I realized... I've been carrying this guy on my back for a long time, for many days, obsessing about him. And seeing that and experiencing the pain of holding it like that was enough to put it down. And, it, and what I'm trying to convey here, and it's, 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 it's coming out a little bit rough, but what I'm trying to convey here is that for some of these repetitive things, sort of neurotic patterns of our psychology that spool out and come back, wind up and spool out and wind up and kind of spin us around over and over again. Sometimes, and, and this is kind of the, the, the dynamic within the, in the meditative journey, we just watch it until it stops doing what it does. We just let it be. And I remember asking, um, around these kinds of themes. I remember asking a therapist I'd been working with about this. I said, how long am I going to be doing this kind of neurotic behavior? And his answer, he was, he was a Buddhist uh, informed psychologist, said, you'll do it again and again and again until you can't do it anymore. <clears throat> so what I want to kind of set us up with is the idea that sitting, our meditation practice, is like a simulator of sorts. It's like a simulator. We'll create the conditions of spacious receptivity, as we said, where we're establishing a mindset of allowance and curiosity. And then, as and when it needs to be handled, uh, our life will show up in our sitting precisely to the great degree that 
conditions of her life that haven't been resolved, that we're still hooked by, that we're still karmically tied up with, those conditions will come in and, and do their thing and, 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 and hook us to the degree that we don't see them clearly yet. And that's not bad news. That's, this is, this is the, the process of making ourselves more conscious of things we tend to be unconscious about. So even though these, these, these defilements are um, difficult and challenging, they do reveal, in, in many ways, they reveal our, our fixations in our being, where we, where we have habitual patterns of contracting, resisting, fighting, pushing away, that gets us into a, a cycle of suffering. So as, as Joseph Goldstein says, and I, and I try to share at least sometime last week, when he sees a hindrance now, he's the, one of the head teachers at IMS, but when Joseph sees a hindrance, he says he rejoices. And he rejoices for the fact that he now is able to make it conscious whereby he won't act out upon it. If it's unconscious, the likelihood of that difficult mind state leading to a unskillful action is much higher. So what we're trying to do is let it be known within consciousness so it can be contained within the safety of our practice. And that's, you know, something that I've really come to appreciate that as I sit, my practice is a vessel within which I can explore very challenging afflictive emotions and in being with them and, and, and in recognizing them and getting familiar with them, I can start to practice not being lost by those impressions. Not stopping them, but just not getting lost in them. And to the extent that I'm able to do that, and it's, a, it's an ongoing work in progress, but to the extent that I'm able to do it, when those same conditions appear in my life, I have a training um, that has developed in me to be better able to handle it. And when I'm not, I act unskillfully still. And then I think about it and, and it comes up because I've, I've, if I've caused harm to myself or others in my life, that bugs me. And it comes back in my meditation and I get to review it there. I see, oh yeah, okay, I can see again. I can feel how this view skewed me in this direction, that led to that action. And you start to see the whole dynamic of how conditions play out and lead either in positive directions or negative ones. So <clears throat> what I'm trying to get at is there's a time and a place in one's practice to let triggering things in, to, to experience the trigger, the spark that flies up, and then the, even to experience the whole conflagration in your mind. It's a safe place to do it in the sitting. And in not suppressing it, in coming, coming directly, honestly in connection with it, we can start to transform our relationship to it, not by doing something to it or getting rid of it, but by shifting our level of being in relationship to it. And that shift is born out of simple observation, a caring, kind observation. That's the only thing that's required of us to, to, to start to support that shift. We don't, there are techniques, there's formula out there. Um, in my mind, that, that tends to just reinforce or reify the, the, the sense of separation from the problem in the first place, that we're a separate self that has a problem that we have to resolve, rather than seeing these are just conditions that are intrinsic to being, ill will, desire, aversion, 
These are intrinsic to being, and we can hold them all just as the sky holds a sunny day, a cloudy day, a snowy day, a rainy day. <clears throat> so I'm going to pause. I have a poem from Ajahn Amaro that I've always loved for, for this theme, and I think I'll use that poem as the entree into the, um, into the, the, the guided meditation tonight. So I'm going to pause the talk, and what's coming to our seat for the meditation, and I'll give a little bit of instruction based on the talk, and then we'll sit in silence. <clears throat> so this is a poem by Ajahn Amaro that was composed in Thailand when he was in his early training there in the late 70s called In Spite of All. I'll just ring the bell to start first. In spite of all the heated breath the angry skies and stormy seas, in spite of the passions ripe and hot that flicker through the mind and trot around each other blind and fraught, furied, signifying not. In spite of this and all of these, in spite of all the agitations, the greed and lust, the confrontations, in spite of all the heat that is spent, I know in truth, I am content. A falling leaf spins through the air and through my open window where it lands upon my lap. Oh joy, a wish, a wish, a wish. Nothing to wish for. Not a thing. My head is a blank, an empty ring. Nothing stirring there, no waves, like the clear and empty blue that paves a still and peaceful ocean sky. The silence between you and I. Silence in the midst of change. A silence, beautiful and strange. Silence in the forest deep, where chickens scratch and lizards creep. Where crickets ring and night birds call. Silence deep, in spite of all. Okay, that's today's talk. I hope some of the reflections and hopefully some of the comical folly of the talk um, bring some levity and humor and, um, and good reflection for you in your own practice. Uh, if you'd like to join, again, if you'd like to join the Yin Yoga Workshop, the special Yin Yoga Workshop that I'll be teaching this Saturday, March 6th, that covers the core foundations and 
basic principles of yin yoga practice. All that information can be found in the show notes under the link that's there or on my website at joshsummers.net forward slash events. And for now, I'll say goodbye. I look forward to seeing, uh, seeing you on the other side of this retreat. And until then, be very well and stay safe.